Welcome to this fourth episode of Neurospiced, a podcast brought to you by Eating Disorders University Australia. We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today. We also pay our respects to elders past and present. This month, Rebecca reflects on the ways in which their neurodivergent journey intersects and interacts with eating uh, disorders and body image. Some of the content of this episode may be distressing for some. Therefore, we would like to emphasize the importance of seeking support whenever needed. For example, you may freely reach out to the Butterfly Foundation helpline on one 334673 much for joining our Neurospiced podcast today, the podcast of Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia. My name is Anna Rose. I'm the Deputy Chair of Edna and today I'm so happy to have um, Rebecca McCash here with me today to um, talk about her journey with neurodivergence and eating disorders and all sorts of other fascinating things. Uh, Rebecca is um, the the person behind Future Tech Australia. And so we're going to hear all about that today as well. So let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Thanks, Anna. It's lovely to be here. Fantastic. All right. So Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit, just to get us started, about how you came to realize that you um, are neurodivergent and maybe a little bit about the diagnostic journey or the identification journey for you? Yeah, sure. So um, my my first kind of inclination that I may be neurodivergent came around um, looking more into eating disorders and the link between eating disorders and neurodivergence, um, which led me down a little bit of a research rabbit hole, which I know that we um, love. Um, love. <laughs> and um, just kind of learning more and more about, I guess, how autism and neurodivergence um, presents in females um, differently maybe to the, how it presents in, in males. Um, I was hired in a role um, with a mostly neurodivergent team um, and that really was the, um, the catalyst, I suppose, of my realization that I too was uh, neurodivergent. Um, it was actually one member of the team who suggested that I look into getting an assessment, which was uh, quite funny because I think I just remember her saying, you know, um, you're one of us. And I'm like, OK, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and her, I guess her radar well, was going off. Yeah. <laughs> and um, just finding such comfortability in that team as well that I'd never found before in a work, work environment, in many social environments, um, which I guess, you know, is, is pretty obvious because, you know, being around other neurodivergent people is often much, much easier for us. Mm. So yeah, so that, that led me to uh, seeking an assessment and I was diagnosed oh, early last year at 26 years old. Mm. Um, right. So about a year ago about a year ago yeah so it's been um it's been a, a journey I think 
I remember speaking with people about what to expect when you get the the diagnosis um, and a lot of people talking about it being a, a, a process of almost grief for not knowing before. I myself was, you know, very, very unhappy as a person. Um, I had been for as long as I could remember. You know, I, I very much didn't want to, to be here. I was kind of chronically suicidal and um, just really, really, really unhappy. I felt very lost within myself. Like I, I didn't know who I was or where I was supposed to be. And um, the diagnosis really just kind of just almost like took away that blanket of gray and hopelessness that I had, you know, lived with for such a long time. Um, and, you know, I've really felt like since then I've come into myself again and I figured out, oh, okay. So like, that's why, you know, these things have happened. It just sort of was like a light bulb going off. Yeah. yeah and- to be able to look back and re kind of reinterpret experiences um I understand some people do talk about feeling grief and I guess it's like that that um sadness around you know what could have been but also I think a lot of the times it does it allows us to really reflect back and and to say oh I can be so much more compassionate to myself about that experience or the way things worked out then because I didn't know what I know now about myself exactly and I felt like it had just given me this framework that I didn't have before to be Mm. able to support myself Mm. um so you know prior to I guess the diagnosis I wasn't even really aware that loud noises bothered me or that I didn't quite understand you know certain communication or you know that um a lot of kind of textures and things like that really bothered me um which was really interesting because I actually put down a lot of the um, adversity to food textures to my eating disorder. Before yeah, that. interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess all of a sudden I had like this framework to kind of just pay attention to mm. my environment and what was, you know, making me overwhelmed or what did make me happy. And I could, you know, design my life a little bit better around that. So um I think it's yeah it was a a a breath of fresh air almost after you know a a lifetime of feeling like I was drowning yeah that's really interesting I find it really interesting what you said about you know not actually even having conscious awareness of the the things that were actually um potentially contributing to sensory overwhelm or you know feeling um like a incongruence between yourself and the environment and I, I guess I've had a similar experience is that after being identified, I was able to look back and, and see or, or to, I guess, be more present in the experience rather than dissociating from that and be like, oh, actually, if I do pay attention right here and right now, I'm not actually enjoying that experience. And mm-hmm. why? I have a framework to interpret that from now rather than just being too sensitive or too fussy or whatever. And yeah. to be able to say, actually, that's just not right for me right now. And choose otherwise, and like, what a gift, really. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And mm. you know, I think you know, autistic people tend to struggle with interoception anyway. Mm. So you mm-hmm. know, being aware of what's going on inside your body and and, and how you're feeling. And I just knew that I was sad, anxious, and 
I, you know, had no idea why. So um, yes. it was, yeah, incredible to to have some kind of a, a framework to start to identify, okay, well, this situation might not actually, you know, be of benefit to me. Um, so mm. I'm just not going to put myself in that position anymore mm. instead of feeling like you have to constantly mold yourself to be able to fit into all of these different, you know, boxes that people want you to 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 fit into um so yeah it was a it was a very like empowering um experience um but I do think I was really really fortunate that I wasn't working in a team with um Mm. you know mostly neurodivergent people and so I could ask questions and you know reach out if I wasn't sure about something you know is this am I being you know emotional here or is this maybe a you know, a thing that's related to neurodivergence, which I don't think necessarily um, many people have that level of support. Um, I agree. And I think that's like so important, that positive um, identity that comes from engaging with other neurodivergent people who have shared experiences and can help you, I guess, reinforce that frame of reference and like reinterpret things. Um, And I guess because we have spent so long being unsure about why we're experiencing some things or why we're, I guess, our mental health is taking a turn in in a certain direction, then we might lack that confidence to make those um, connections, you know, on our own and really have faith in them, but we can bounce them off other people in our communities to really be, I guess, achieve that sense of validation. And you're right, not everyone has access to that. Um, So what a blessing that you are able to have this team and, and as well, it sounds to me, Rebecca, like you had really positive experience with neuro, experiences with neurodivergent people leading in, yes, which I'm sure influenced how you, I guess, processed everything that came with being identified. Definitely, um, 100%. So my my younger brother, Sam, he's the best human being I mm-hmm. have ever met in my life. Um, I just absolutely adore him. And he he was diagnosed as a child. Um, yeah, so he kind of led me on this, you know, journey of trying to learn everything I possibly could learn about neurodivergence, um, reading Mm -hmm. all of the papers and all of the latest theories. Um, and I guess that was sort of the, the reason I ended up in the type of work that I'm in as well. So he was sort of the inspiration for future tech. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I realized that Future Tech could actually be of benefit to people like me and and Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was diagnosed and I kind of got on the phone to Sam and, and told Sam, his words to me were, yeah, duh. Like, you needed someone else to tell you? <laughs> Wow, why That's why so did funny. you not think this was important to mention before now? Um, and he's like, I just assumed that, you know, you would have known because it's so obvious. That's so okay. funny. Yeah, yeah, very, very funny. He's um he's an epic, epic um young man. And so yes, I definitely always had very positive people to to look to who were neurodivergent. Um and I always kind of thought, you know, it's it's these types of kids and these types of people that I think could really make a big impact in the world. Um, and 
I could see that they weren't being supported to do that. Um, so yeah, so that's where where I guess Future Tech was was born from. Um, Tell us and, a little bit about Future Tech so that so that our audience know. Um, yes, what this amazing thing is you're doing. Yes, <laughs> important, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> All good. We're here for we're here to help each other. <laughs> um, so Future Tech um, is a, a social enterprise. We um, support autistic young people, and we do that through offering uh, a range of different. STEAM um, programs, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts and Maths. Um, so we offer students, I guess, just a, a space that they can come to and learn about things that they really care about. I know that in school, you know, we're often forced to, to learn topics and, and things that we don't really care about. And Research and, you know, lived experience shows that it's very difficult to um, engage autistic students in content that they're not motivated by. Um, mm -hmm. So we we took a lot of time just to, to really think about, OK, what is the best way of teaching neurodivergent young people using things like their, their strengths, their interests, um, universal design principles? Mm -hmm. Again, because a lot of these students may have um, very, very high skills in, in in coding, for example, but you know, not not very great language skills. So, mm. how do we accommodate for um, students with totally spiky, you know, profiles um, and who are of a variety of different ages? So, um, we yeah, designed the entire program um, around just thinking about those those um those areas and also like what are the main barriers to learning so i think a lot of students are are, are in school and there are all of these environmental factors that play mm, um, absolutely they're you know not allowed to use a sensory tool while they're learning because it's seen as distracting um they're not allowed to take breaks when they want to mm. um so one thing we start every session with which i feel is so so important is after of course our acknowledgement of country um our mm. statement of inclusion mm. and it's literally just a reminder to the kids that they are welcome as they are we don't expect them to change or you know try and try and not um display their autistic selves like we were like yeah. come as you are we love you you're amazing you know use any strategies you need to use if you need to take a break or you yeah. know if you just aren't super feeling great today that's cool like just let us know and mm -hmm. and um and we'll work with that so yeah so we're we've been around for just over a year amazing congratulations it sounds like such important work and I think potentially addressing a really big gap I guess, in service provision because, you know, the rates of school um, refusal or difficulties at school and bullying and all of those things, they're really, really high and amongst our neurodivergent um, school children. And, and so anything we can do to really, I guess, accommodate those areas of strength um, and, and challenges in a really affirming way is just going to be so beneficial. I'm curious, are your workshops or your programs, are they delivered online or are they face-to-face? -face? Both, both. Oh, so we have, yeah. um, yes, so we have online programs running throughout Australia. So that's 
you know, mm -hmm. open to anybody. Uh, and then we have a face-to-face -face program here in Sydney, um, mm. where I live and most of the team are located. Um, and it's great because it's actually, for some people, online is just better. Online is yes, just definitely. easier to engage with. You don't have so mm -hmm. many, um, I guess, uh, expectations, you know, eye contact and mm. verbal talk, verbal communication and things. Mm. Um, but for some kids, they love the, you know, face-to-face -face social interaction. Yeah. So um, I think that was a really important design um, that we had either or so that people can mm. choose. And mm. so that, you know, if a student one week is just not feeling like they want to come into classes, then they can just join online. So yeah, flexibility. Offers, yeah, exactly. Offers mm. them that flexibility, which I think is one of the main things that's lacking for them in their lives um mm. so yeah I mean we we love it we absolutely love it I I just I come away from every Saturday and I'm just like glowing and so so happy and they're so funny um and yeah they teach me way more than I teach them most of the time so that's always amazing, good. amazing. and so tell me what has it been like um I guess starting this um social entrepreneurship like it's like you you've started something really big like what how's that panned out for you being neurodivergent and what are some of the challenges I guess that you've experienced and some of the things that you found really easy such an interesting one I actually I give a lot of thanks to future tech in that I think you know prior to my diagnosis it really was the thing that kept me going you know I was mm -hmm. sort of had this this um this purpose almost and work to do and it was so important and I knew it needed to get done and I could see that it wasn't going to happen if I wasn't going to do it so that yeah. kind of kept me going um when I was really really unhappy um I guess in terms of starting a social enterprise it's 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 horribly complicated and um yes. you never know if you're getting it all right or if you know you've missed something huge that's that's really really important um so I think it's you know it's really really it, it's going to be really beneficial um to have you know more supports for people to start up social enterprise I know mm. that um there are people looking at um, autistic social enterprise specifically, which um, is super exciting and I think will be, be amazing because I think, you know, many, many autistic people have these amazing ideas in their heads, but they just don't necessarily have the tools to be able to, to yeah. start. Um, yeah. And I think for me, it was, it was, um, I can't not do this. Um mm. I I guess my perfectionism um was a is a benefit in some some ways. I mean we can we can use it to our advantage. Um and just the sheer determination, just like, you know, it's I'm gonna do this. If it kills me, I don't care what stands in my way, I'm gonna make sure that it happens. Um yeah, determination, right? Totally. Just to get it done. Yeah. Totally. Um and 
you know, I, yeah, I think that that was it. It was just, it was brute force. Um, <laughs> there so many Keep gaps. on pushing. Yeah, so, so many apps in my knowledge. Like, I don't know how to run a business. That's not my, um, my area of expertise. But you'll figure it out as you go along. Wing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess in terms of social entrepreneurship for autistic people specifically, like there are a lot of like unique barriers for, I think, neurodivergent people. A lot of um, networking and, um, you know, trying to get funding and things like that require you to be very, very social and go to events and, you know, talk to all these different people who, you know, might be big CEOs and, you know, just scary people. And um, I think that's really, I know they're not actually scary. I just, no, um, I get it. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that's a huge, a huge um, difficulty for autistic social entrepreneurs because we, we, we don't necessarily have the capacity to to do all of the social things, you know, taking into consideration, you're still working because, you know, bills, and then you're working outside of that, you know, all of your, all of the rest of the hours, because you're trying to start this, this, this thing that you're so passionate about. So then to try and go to like a networking event or um, a fundraising event, you're just like, oh, I, yeah, I don't think I can. And being careful to avoid burnout, you know, because that's such a, I guess, realistic risk because we are passionate, right? And as you said, determined and want to succeed at all costs and it becomes a very strong special interest. And that can mean that decisions are made that put us in a position where we aren't left with enough spoons (laughs) to really cope. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... um, that's so true. You know, I I have been in like at burnout points so much so many times mm-hmm. in my life. Um, and I think, you know, it's almost like because I have this responsibility now, I can't afford to um yes. not take care of myself. So I've gotten much, much better at, you know, saying no and making sure that I exercise and eat well. And, and do all of the things to take care of me because if mm-hmm. I don't take care of me then there's no way I can you know juggle mm-hmm. all of these balls at once um and so I guess it takes careful crafting um and deliberate design of your entire life to be able mm-hmm. to um maintain such a a, a a schedule and um you know not nope not burn out yeah <laughs> yeah I guess something we, I mean, we haven't really talked about your experience with eating yet, but I I think that this, it does kind of tie in because you have experience with having disordered eating and an eating disorder when you were younger. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording around how, um, even though you consider yourself to be, um, no longer in an acute phase of that eating disorder, that there's still things that come up from time to time that you need to manage. So maybe if we backtrack a little bit and then we can get to, to um, where you're at now as well, I think that'd be really important to kind of incorporate into this discussion around managing our work-life balance and keeping ourselves well. So do you mind telling us a little bit about your experience with disordered eating and an eating disorder? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I first started experiencing, I guess, symptoms of an eating disorder in the um, school holidays between um, primary school and secondary school. So I know that that's not, um, that doesn't translate to Australia. Um, so that's maybe year seven into year eight, I want to mm-hmm. say. I was around about yeah. 12 at the time. Mm. Um, but at the, at the, in the beginning, it was very subtle. Um, it wasn't um, particularly, you know, dangerous. But as we know, you know, it doesn't take um, too much for that to become dangerous. Mm. So I ended up being formally diagnosed at 14 um, mm-hmm. after I had just returned from um, competing in the cheerleading world championships, which was oh, wow. an experience. Yep. But um, a little bit traumatic in ways as well. Um, mm. So after coming back from that, I had lots of feelings and, and, and um, you know, my eating sort of really, really ramped up at that point. Mm. Um, and led to me being, you know, admitted into hospital with blood sugar levels just dangerously low. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when I was I was diagnosed formally. Um, I remember uh, being in the children's wards and uh, having the the doctor like speak to my mom and, and say, you know, she's only she's only just um, uh, her BMI is only just low enough to be able to um, give this diagnosis and. <laughs> That was just, un- <laughs> it's just, this it's fuel for, this, like the absolute worst thing. It's for- baffling that you would um, see, you know, a medical professional speak like this. But I, I do think, I mean, this is going back over wow. 10 years ago. So, so yeah, so I was um, formally diagnosed at, at 14 um, mm. and then started receiving treatments. Um, and I was formally diagnosed with anorexia at that point. Mm-hmm. But um, following that, you know, I feel like you know, I've dipped in and in and out of different um, quote unquote diagnosis mm-hmm. of, of eating disorders. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. I, I, I reflected on um, on this many, many times where I would think, you know, I, I anorexia would present and then Mm. you know once that had sort of got unsustainable then bulimia would present and then when I got a grip on the the bulimia that's when it just translated into binge eating disorder so it Mm. was just always you know a bit of an uh an ebb and flow of of different Mm. presentations um Mm. of course you know was that managed, like, you know, identified by the supports you were getting at the time? Like, were they able to kind of, um, I guess, adapt their supports? Or do you, or I guess, like, there's all different treatments that are used for different, um, you know, eating disorder classifications. And we do see this diagnostic creep where people kind of shape shift in and out of different diagnoses or presentations of their eating disorder. And yeah, I'm just interested to hear like your experience of how your supports were or were not appropriate to kind of support you through those transitions? Yeah, I I think that um, they weren't great at adapting. You know, I I was in the UK at the time and, and we have the wonderful NHS, but of course they're, you know, very under-resourced. They always have been. 
And um, I remember I had a psychologist for some time um, and she kind of suddenly left um, the, the, the clinic and I didn't receive another like psychologist for months and months, maybe up to even a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still seeing a psychiatrist to manage the um, medications that I was on, but not getting that, I guess, talking therapy. Um, that being said, you know, I think a lot of the therapy that I received was um, centered around cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Um, which I don't necessarily think is the best strategy for neurodivergent people. Um, What did you find challenging about it or like what did you find not to be a good fit? For me, and I guess, you know, everybody has their own experiences and and it may be an amazing approach for for some. Um, I think for me, it was almost the perfect storm of, of, of things that were going on that made it unbeneficial. So... I had, you know, the eating disorder where um, we are kind of taught to almost uh, be separating your thoughts from the eating disorder. So there's a little bit of internal confusion that then comes from that. Mm -hmm. Then the um, undiagnosed, you know, um, neurodivergence um, where I just love to overanalyze everything, but at the same time, find it really difficult to um, interpret my own feelings. And, um, you know, many many, um, autistic people struggle with interoception. So like figuring out what's going on inside of you can be really, really Mm -hmm. difficult. Um, So when CBT kind of came in and started teaching me to question every thought that came into my head, that you know, existing fuel for the fire. Exactly. Of total confusion just, you know, made me Mm. super distrustful of myself and my own Mm. feelings and the way that I experienced and interpreted the world. Um, which I think, you know, led to a lot, a lot of dissociation. And I think that's interesting, um, Rebecca, what you said there around, you know, if we look at eating disorder behaviors, they're often um they're serving a purpose. They're serving a function for um, the person experiencing the eating disorder. And so therefore, if we, as you said, if you take it away and you don't have anything um, adaptive um, to replace it with, then we're potentially putting ourselves or the people we're working with in a position where a maladaptive coping strategy or or poorer mental health will, will emerge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um I think that it, it it is really difficult because I know that if, you know, therapy was done a little bit more comprehensively for me, um and maybe um drew on a few different types of approaches, I probably would have, you know, been able to um replace that with something more um mm-hmm helpful um and you know it's it's very very difficult eating disorders are just so so complex um Mm. but I I definitely think that um a lot of the eating disorder was kind of helped along by some of the social difficulties that I experienced Mm. as a young person um 
you know, going from from primary school age, 12 years old into um, like 13, 14, 15 um, social relationships just go from being super simple to being Mm -hmm. unbelievably complicated. And I just never got it right. So I think for me, my eating disorder almost helped me to um, just kind of step back and and not not have to deal with a lot of that stuff um mm. so you know it definitely served served a function and then you know mm. coming back into that trying to reintegrate into you know life was um really really hard um and mm. I struggled a lot with friendships and and, and friendship groups and you know that I think again fed into the depression and feeling suicidal and not knowing where I belonged or what to kind of um, Mm -hmm. do with myself. Um, So yeah, it was just like kind of the the whole teenage year. It's just like the perfect storm of just not goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) Um, well, it's like that real sense of belonging which you just said at the end there, like you struggled to know where you where you belonged. And I think that that's, um, that's such an important thing to take notice of is that in those early adolescent years, yes, social relationships become much more complex and so much harder for us to navigate if we don't understand our own selves as neurodivergent people. We haven't been, you know, potentially back then, you know, you weren't identified as being neurodivergent so you have no framework to to kind of proceed with social um communications and social relationships that's actually right for you Mm. and so therefore it's just like it's asking you to climb Mount Everest really yeah and you know Mount Everest with with like with no oxygen tanks (laughs) like with nothing you know it's swarming and you're just like where am I going where am I yes (laughs) what is this storm here coming in (laughs) I didn't see that cloud (laughs) um yeah it's, it's yeah definitely a challenging time and I think something that we need to you know be very very aware of um especially in our um you know neurodivergent um young females um because it's hard it's very very hard time and a lot of females are not you know picked up on um until a little bit later um mm. until that that point where you know things get more complex um and you know i think a lot of the time you know your social difficulties can end up manifesting in things like eating disorders um depression anxiety so i think it's just so important to um to to be aware of 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 that and um to be you know checking in with our um you know neurodivergent young females and just mm. or those who aren't neurodivergent even you know just to make sure that mm. you know perhaps there is something going on there that you know it's not um super obvious and maybe an eating disorder is masking that or um depression is masking that so in my opinion there's definitely enough evidence in place already that we should be screening all eating disorder um patients for neurodivergence yeah we should be like that should just be standard doing a screener for ADHD um autism Tourette's 
all sorts of things. And that would be, I guess, one way in which we could really fast track identification for many people. Because uh, I mean, you said that um, someone did mention potentially ADHD early on in your eating disorder journey, but it was never followed up. Is that right? Yes, yes. I remember them kind of mentioning it. And again, I think there was, um, because my brother was diagnosed with ADHD too. So I think they were like, oh, I mean, maybe because large genetic um, influence. Mm. Um, and it was just kind of, I think, you know, briefly mentioned and then forgotten about. And yeah, I can understand why in some ways that that happened because, you know, trying to save your your life first, I suppose, um, make sure that, you know, mm. you you were healthy physically. Um, but it would have been good maybe if someone had revisited that um, yes. later, later on when things were a little bit more stable with um, with regard to my physical health. Um, but it never was. Um, and I, I don't think I ever really thought about it much again until I received the, the formal diagnosis of ADHD. Um, you know, it's just, I, I think I just always thought that I was just a really big daydreamer and very scatterbrained, but again, ADHD presents super, super differently in, um, females to males. And there are so many different types of presentations, um, that oh. most medical professionals just don't know to look for. Mm, um, definitely. It's very, uh, what we call like heterogeneous in its presentation, like so many different versions of ADHD. And, and so that does present like some challenges to identification, but there are also some, some ways that we can, you know, screen for it and assess for it that potentially aren't being utilized in the way that they should be or could be. Mm. I think we're I think we're getting better um with with regard to diagnosis. Um still got a very, very long way to go. I think sometimes I can get a little bit um uh almost like biased the right words. I'm not sure. Um because I work in this realm and this is my like I exist, you know, in autism and ADHD land. Like this is where yeah. where I am um professionally, you know, as well as in in myself sometimes I think that we're a lot further ahead than than we actually are Mm -hmm. you're in a little bubble you're in a little lovely neurodiversity affirming bubble exactly (laughs) exactly. outside of me like oh I didn't really realize we're still back here and I guess like from my point of view I get to exist in both worlds and um sometimes clinically I see still quite a bit of gatekeeping of assessments um, and also there's, I guess, because there has been an uptick in a number of, especially females, mm-hmm. um, adult females presenting for ADHD and autism assessments, I have seen like a little bit of um, wariness or, or suspicion from um, some professionals around like, well, you know, it's just like a, a trend and whatnot and therefore using that to gatekeep assessment processes. And I think, well. I just think that's not a valid argument or a valid excuse to gatekeep that um, at all because previously this information wasn't made available and so therefore how would people suspect what was going on and they would potentially just ending up with, you know, anxiety, depression, BPD, all different kind of um, clinical diagnoses that don't really fully explain their experience. 
Yeah, for sure. Like for sure. And, you know, it's, it's so inaccessible to get that assessment anyway, you know, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. waitlist cost. Yeah. Oh, it's finding the right professional. It's crazy. It's it's really crazy. Um, I was very fortunate that um, one of my colleagues knew someone. Um, oh, yeah. So that was, you know, really, um, I was, I've been very, very, very lucky, I think, on this entire yeah. journey, you know, 14 mm-hmm. to 18 was a little rocky, but I've <laughs> been really, really, <laughs> really, really lucky. Um, but it, but it's so fascinating that the lack of understanding that so many medical professionals have. I remember I um I went to my general practitioner and and she is an, an incredible general practitioner. She supported me so well through my um, struggles with uh, mental health. Um, but you know there were periods of time where I was going into her her. Um, practice and she was scared to let me leave because I was so so unhappy um and so when I told her my diagnosis um she said oh you know I I wonder sometimes how beneficial it is for um adults to get diagnosed um because you know you you seem fine and Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) she's giving me a whole new frame of reference for my life that fits (laughs) but also you know like three four months ago I was in here weekly you know and you were so concerned for my well-being you know you you were how (laughs) not congruent (laughs) I think it really is because you know I had a job I Mm -hmm. you know had um, moved to the other side of the world. I had some friends. I, you know, could verbally communicate quite well. And so the way that a lot of people see it is just just that um, that that social, that external, like the way that, you know, you are existing in, in the world and how people see you, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily consider that neurodivergence has an impact on your everything your internal and Mm. you know that was not knowing that about myself was then causing me to be extremely extremely unhappy and so there was again that's the um that pigeonhole of Mm. diagnoses and conditions not understanding that everything plays into everything else Um, and just because you're coping on the outside or you seem to be coping at this point in time that doesn't mean that you're not working so extremely hard to present that image or to just do like the minimum that's required and behind closed doors or you're very close to burning out and having, you know, other challenges. So you need to do that extra deep digging, really. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's mm. um, I, I often try and think about it or the, the way that I interpret it is like neurodivergence is um, the way your brain works. and then. You know, things like anxiety, depression, eating disorders, they are the the symptoms of, Mm -hmm. you know, your environment not matching up to the way that you process and and need to exist in the world. Um, And so that goes back to why we should be screening everybody Mm -hmm. with an eating disorder for neurodivergence, because that could just be the symptom of, you know, not not knowing or um, not having the support in place to be able to 
you know, mm. exist um, well and thrive. Absolutely. And, and like, I guess you spoke earlier about having a really deliberate um, approach to planning your life. And if you're being deliberate um, by using the wrong framework, you're potentially going to be perpetuating these circumstances that are going to lead to, um, you know, um, circumstances like anxiety or, or conditions like anxiety or depression, and eating disorder becoming coming back. Like because the framework that you're using to map and plan your life is not actually well suited to your actual capacity or your cognitive style. And so I think exactly what you said there. We like having an a, a uh, being identified as neurodivergent, um, that label is so important. Even if you p- appear to be coping, e- even if you appear you've got your job and your family and you're having a relationship, you've got friends, it doesn't matter. Like in terms of long term well being, yeah, that identification is so crucial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And I, I think I, I, you know got it wrong so often because I was using a wrong framework here I thought oh I will be happier if I go out and socialize even more than yes. I am and yeah, I was Why just am I not having fun at this party <laughs> digging the hole for myself deeper and deeper and deeper the more I was trying to help myself and it's just you know insane and so if you are working from the wrong framework, you 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 are at risk of damaging yourself more and and doing way more harm than good. Um, and I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm pretty sure like one of the um, or an element of diagnoses is around. It has to have a huge impact or has to have a, 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 an impact impairment. Yeah, it has to be impairing. Yeah. And yeah, you know that again. Ah. Oh, it's just crazy because it's not uh, it's not an external um, uh, experience at neurodivergence. And I remember we like I used to talk about this in relation to eating disorders because um, I felt very strongly that anybody could have an eating disorder. You know, you didn't it didn't matter what you looked like on the outside, what your BMI was. You could you could have the internal cognitive thinking um and you know you can look at that person and think everything's fine and 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 not um you know realize that that they have an eating disorder that they're unhappy but internally they're like you know gasping for air trying to to just be um and neurodivergence is, is very very similar you know I don't think that um I um present obviously I guess you know the criteria is is ever shifting and rightly so mm-hmm. but you know I don't think that anyone would meet me and think oh this person is autistic I, I mm. really in their stereotyped that. view of what exactly. that would look like to them yeah exactly but and that's I think as well what what inhibited me from from ever um identifying that way is because I didn't feel like I, I I presented externally to people as an autistic person, but I knew that my brain worked like an autistic person's did. So yes, that's interesting. And that's because having experience with your brother and then working with people. So you could identify that, hey, my thinking style, the yeah. way I am in, internally and in the world that I can see is 
similar, but yeah. your third person view of yourself, like if you step outside yourself, you're like, no, no, right, no, no, <laughs> that doesn't match up. Mm, Crazy, such an interesting perspective. Yeah, just like no, I'm, I'm I'm not an autistic person. I just think like one, and you're like, but that is <laughs> that is it. <laughs> that is it, right? Um, yes. But you know, yeah. we just don't we don't look at at neurodivergence in that way. We only look at it from the outside in. Um, well, I th- and that's starting to change. But like, if you look at the diagnostic criteria, it is a third person perspective, and we need. So many more, um, I guess, first-person accounts or phenomenological accounts of what it is to be autistic or ADHD or any other type of neurodivergent. What does that feel like in the world and what is that experience like for each individual? And then we can start to really build, um, I guess, this really much more comprehensive sense of the internal experience. And then that can inform, I guess, the identification criteria because then clinicians who aren't who don't have that experience of being neurodivergent they need to learn that somewhere and and then if someone comes and presents and said this is my internal internal experience it's also important that they then trust that person and don't discount them because of the way that they are speaking or presenting or the job that they have so there's a lot of I guess um trust that needs to be built in terms of trusting people's first person reports or accounts of their experience yeah yeah and I think that's I think it can be really really difficult for a lot of medical professionals um you know especially considering the fact that a lot of um autistic and neurodivergent um people have been misdiagnosed with things like borderline personality disorder which Mm you know, many, many medical professionals have extremely prejudiced um, views on Very that. So. As soon as you step into a room and you have that diagnosis attached to you, people don't mm-hmm. believe you anymore. Um, so, you know, there's just barriers up everywhere for, for so many people to just um, understand who they are in the world. And mm-hmm. I think we're, we are a long way off Um you know, getting to a place where um, everybody, you know, who should have the right to 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 feel, you know, okay within themselves, um, actually does. Um, mm. But you absolutely, know, we're just gonna keep going. There's there's a couple more things that I was really interested to learn about your experience. So, so one of the things I'm going to step back, and it's something you mentioned earlier, and this has been in my mind to come back to it. You talked about your experience um, doing cheerleading. And I think that um, I'd really love to hear about that experience in terms of, you know, being in, it sounds like quite a high level of a competitive sport, which is an aesthetic sport. So a lot of body related stuff, I'm sure, um, in that environment. Um, So being competing at a high level, being knowing now that you're neurodivergent, um, but then also like how all of those, both of those things interacted with the emergence or of your eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, yeah. Such a complex I mean, question. But <laughs> no, it is, but um, it's, I guess, just a reflection, you know, cheerleading, it was um, the biggest love of my life and probably one of the things that damaged me the most yeah. um, because we're looking at a team sport, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's not a, an individual sport. So you have, you know, a team of maybe uh, like 15, usually female, usually teenagers um, mm-hmm. in a team together. And um, you are, um, you know, all allocated different, I guess, roles within the, the routine and the team. So I was a flyer, uh, meaning I got mm. thrown in the air. So of <laughs> course, there was a lot of pressure to stay a certain um, weight um, or, or below a certain weight um, for that reason. And um, a lot of people think in cheerleading that there's like huge amounts of competition between the teams, um, mm. but it, it's more within the teams. There's like yeah. huge amounts of uh, competition just to um, keep your position in the team, um, which, you know, <laughs> causes so, so much conflict. Um, and I guess like, I just never really knew how to navigate that. Mm. Um, you know, I just wanted to show up and, and, and enjoy my sport. I loved it. You know, I really, really enjoyed, um, performing and, that was it. That's all I wanted from it. But then there was all of this kind of, um, you know, you, you you wanted to be in with this certain mini group of the group or, um, you know, you, you didn't want to be associated with. And it was just so, so complicated. Um, and I ended mm-hmm. up just making so many mistakes. Like I just couldn't couldn't seem to get it right. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did go to the world championships, I went, that was my first time kind of going away, um, overseas without my, my family. It was just myself and, and the coaches. Um, and, you know, I was pretty deep into the eating disorder at this point, but, Mm -hmm. um, the way that I was, I guess, treated by the other, um, or some of the, the other girls in the team was very, 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 very poor. Um, and I didn't have anyone to kind of, um, go to, to sort of, uh, ask what to do. Like my mom wasn't there. And, um, you know, there was one, one experience where we had gone to breakfast and, um, one of the girls said like, you, you must eat this piece of toast. Otherwise you will, you know, um, face consequences I can't really remember exactly what it was at the time but things like that and so um so yeah that's when I came back that was that was really the the the, um the point where I went from I guess um uh dipping in and out of disordered eating to like this is you know everything um yeah but then at the same time that that ended up being a really good motivator for me to get better so I think, you know, my neurodivergence um, meant that or means that everything I do, I, I do. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I can't just dip my toe in the water. Put it, yep. <laughs> take it to the absolute extreme. Otherwise, it's not worth doing kind of thing. Um, yeah. And uh, cheerleading was that for me for mm. years and years and years. I only stopped cheerleading like mm, maybe five years ago. Because yeah, my body right. cannot do it anymore. It's um, an intense sport. Yes. And I was doing it all through my eating disorder as well. So you could imagine mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. bones and um, muscles and my ankles and my wrists and everything just, you know, 
doesn't doesn't uh, comply anymore with all the back <laughs> running yes. around. Um, but yeah, it definitely. Um, it, again, like I think that coaches, um, especially in things like dance, cheerleading, um, you know, gymnastics. Yeah, areas that, you know, have a lot of young children um, going through. I just don't think that they've received the level of training that they need to <laughs> to mm. be able to support a lot of kids. You know, um, I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a really, really, really big problem. Again, might be a little bit better now than it, it was back then, but, you know, mm. it was... In, like a lot of this behavior was encouraged and um mm. it was it was really really um damaging to I think many of the the young girls that came through um so mm. yeah but like at the same time such an amazing opportunity um and yeah I think there's a lot of work to be done in that region um mm. I think it's really interesting you know your experience in terms of you know you see I guess your experience of like the social challenges and the like the internal competitiveness of the team, plus the um, I guess requirement or the focus on maintaining a certain body weight shape size, yeah. like they were fuel for disordered eating. But at the same time, it also turned out to be that like if you if you stripped all of that away, you still had this. I guess special interest and this real drive to do mm. cheerleading yeah. to move your body in that way potentially more than anything else like moving your body in that way felt like really good for you and so that was then a motivator for you to to actually get better so you could be strong enough to do it and I guess that just speaks to the complexity of of these situations so you know if you were to take away cheerleading in your recovery and say no more cheerleading we're taking away something that is potentially a strong motivator, internal motivator for your recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I understand the complexity my, of it. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, feel for my poor mother. Um, you know, she, she, she <laughs> we all do. We're looking back. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> um, but no, she definitely, it must've been so hard for her because she knew that cheerleading was a huge reason why I ended up, you know, so unwell, but she also couldn't take it away from me. So mm-hmm. she was stuck in this, you know, really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, gosh, bless her. She's just a, a, a saint, that woman, I swear. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how she did it, but I guess that's another thing that's kind of missed is support, like good support mm-hmm. for parents, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think um, meeting other parents is really like helpful. I remember we um, went to a conference, my mother and I, and um, that was the first opportunity she got to to meet parents of of other people who um, had supported their children through eating disorders. And mm-hmm. it was just like uh, a light went off um, on on off on on the yeah. sense of belonging for her. I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, parents need to be supported to support their children. I think too often we just expect parents to get on with it because, you know, oh, well, it's your child, but it's not that simple. Um, 
And so many parents that I work with um, at Future Tech, you know, they have very, very narrow um, views of um, autism and neurodivergence when they come in to us. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that we do, I guess, just in the way that we talk about neurodivergence um, works to sort of break down a lot of that. So I think for parents, it's 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 really, really hard. I mean, you you do you ask Dr. Google and it's just all of the deficits and all of the bad things. And, you know, how are you supposed to support a child? Well, if you know, you've been told by everybody that there's something wrong with them. Um, yes. It's just, yeah. So I think we we need to get a lot better at helping parents to support their children. Um, mm. So that, you know, like they don't burn out and end up unwell themselves because that, that happens. <laughs> uh, I'm a parent to two young neurodivergent children. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> and I have a lot of friends that are also parents to neurodivergent children and I can 100% agree that every single parent I meet with and speak to um, is just craving that sense of belonging and support and understanding because it can be a very isolating experience to speak to other parents and then not understand you know the unique um, things that come along with um, being a neurodivergent parent to neurodivergent children or being a neurotypical parent to neurodivergent children and um it's interesting because like there are there are support groups out there but some of them are still very much entrenched in the medical model and so therefore that doesn't really facilitate um a strengths-based approach to parenting um and it can yeah I don't see it as being particularly productive in terms of helping parents longer term yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the more, I guess, um prominent or louder voices are the 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 ones that are coming from that medical model perspective. Mm-hmm. Although, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing a we're doing a lot of work to try and shift that. Um and I think slowly, slowly, but um but yeah, I I I, I do I feel for parents because it must be so hard. And I've spoken to some who, you know, they will like avoid kind of standing at the school gates or, you know, they will avoid like end up, you know, a lot of their friendships, historical friendships break down because, Mm -hmm. you know, they either struggle to, you know, be around their friends who have children who are not experiencing any kind of challenge or, um, their friends don't understand their children um, or try and, you know, it's it's very, very difficult. It's it's really, really, really hard. Um, and so I guess that's one thing that's really important for me to provide or at least try to facilitate um, within the parents mm-hmm. at Future Tech. And it kind of happens organically, which is quite nice. Um, yeah. Sort of like hang out outside while the kids are kind of coming in and have a chat with each other. And um, one parent said to me, you know, it's it's amazing. Like, usually I would be just so on edge in a situation like this because um, I'd be listening to see if he was making noise or, you know, mm-hmm. doing X, Y, Z, whatever, you know, being autistic, essentially. Um, 
because that wouldn't be acceptable in many settings. Um, and she's just like, it's amazing. I can hear noise. And I'm like, I don't know if that's mine or another one or like, you know. Uh, <laughs> and no one's worried about it. Nobody's worried about it. Be your authentic all. self. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, you know, keep keep providing that for, for parents because mm. it's, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have any children. Um, so I can you, only... you get to see it from the external perspective of working with parents of the children who are participating in your programs and, you know, listening to their stories. And that's a valuable perspective to be able to have. Mm. Yeah. And I think like sometimes parents, you know, they can be um, wary of, I guess, fully leaning into a neurodiversity affirming approach or like a more of a affirming paradigm because there is the fear of having their um, difficult experiences discounted or not fully understood. Um, you know, if we try to, and I feel like, you know, being careful not to put always a positive spin on neurodivergence because sometimes there are challenges. And as you said before, parents, in order to support their children, parents need to feel supported and that's in all areas. And so yeah. I think that that's something that, you know, as a community, um, you know, those of us that are um, you know, part of the neurodiversity affirming par- paradigm, like really need to do a little bit more work there to help parents feel safe coming yeah. in to, to come in as they are and meeting them where they're at um, without feeling like they're going to be, you know, criticized or, um, invalidated Mm. definitely definitely and I I completely agree with Mm. with that and people are only going to feel welcome if they feel safe you know to share and to show up authentically as themselves you're a divergent or not exactly um and I think the other the other fear sometimes um for parents um who I guess are coming into you know neuroaffirming programs um spaces etc is that, and I hear this one a lot, well, they have to learn how to cope in a neurotypical world because the majority of the world is neurotypical. And, you know, I completely agree. But Mm. how do you learn to cope? You learn how to utilize strategies like stim tools and noise cancelling headphones and taking breaks and, you know, doing the things that you need to do so that you can cope in that environment, but nobody Mm. kind of sees it that way. Um, You know, it's like, well, we have to take your headphones off so that you can, I don't know, be, you know, almost um, exposed to noise. It's like, well, no. Yes, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Like being able to cope means that I need to use my headphones and that's okay kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that... I think sometimes there's a there's a um a view that um to cope in a neurotypical world an autistic person has to struggle. I think that you know yes it's going to be harder for sure but if you learn what helps you then by by accessing spaces and having you know autistic role models and things like that to show you different ways and different strategies um, you, you're much more likely to be able to succeed in in a world that's not built for you. Mm. And being able to use those 
um, adaptive accommodation. So like the noise cancelling headphones or stim toys or, or, or movement, being able to use them without fear of that adding to discrimination or adding to being, um, you know, socially excluded. Like I feel like that's where a lot of work can still be done in terms of bridging that gap of understanding that um, rather than, yes, putting all of the burden on a neurodivergent person to, I guess, weather the storm of a neurotypical world, that we facilitate access to the their preferred accommodations that they have autonomously decided to engage with. And then that is to be able to be done by that person without repercussions. Yeah. On anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Gosh, you wouldn't, you know, see like discrimination happening if someone, you know, needed to take iron because they're anemic, for example. I don't know. I'm just like, (laughs) everybody needs different things to help support them to live. And, you know, who cares? what what that that looks like it should be accepted so Rebecca we have covered so much ground and I think this is a really lovely spot to wrap up I'm conscious of your time we've been talking for ages so (laughs) um I guess we're talking about you know accommodations and understanding of um our own needs as neurodivergent people navigating the world that we live in and so I'm curious to know you know in terms of your eating disorder recovery and I know I'm going to use the word recovery um, loosely because I know that has very different meanings to different people Um, and I guess maybe just thinking about you know no longer being in an acute phase of your eating disorder um, what I guess views do you have on the accommodations um, that you now need to consider to keep yourself in that um, in the place that you are and do you think like how does being neurodivergent, I guess, influence um, your relationship with eating now in terms of, you know, not being in that acute phase and, and staying, you know, well. Yeah. In terms um, of eating. That was yeah. very long-winded. <laughs> no, no, this is amazing. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, um, I have a very, very um, organized schedule. <laughs> um, um, so I dance. I, I left cheerleading because couldn't couldn't do that, but I still dance. Um, and I have to do that, you know, at least twice a week. Otherwise, the the whole thing is just going to start to to fall apart. Um, I paint. It's very relaxing, and I enjoy it. So that that's something that you know helps me to just like decompress at the end of the day. Um, I make sure that I'm always trying to live to my values, not to goals, because goals can be met or not met. But I try to make sure that everything I do um, is aligned with what I believe in. And I'm very lucky to live a life where I, I can do that, because I think in, in the past when I've done jobs that I worked in, in teams where I didn't feel like there was an alignment there, I really, really, really struggled. And in terms of like food specifically, I have actually gotten a lot um, more gentle with myself. Um, you know, prior to, I guess, uh, the autism diagnosis, I was always pushing myself to try new foods or push through the fact that the textures just I couldn't like made me feel sick or the Mm. smell made me feel unwell. Um, 
realizing, I guess, that that wasn't an eating disorder and something to be um, challenged. Actually, it was just that I was like had really intense sensory sensitivities to food texture and food smells meant that I could actually just start to eat food for enjoyment again. Um, and, mm. and, you know, who cares if you eat the same thing every day, you know, as long as it's giving you all the nutrients that you need and you enjoy it. Um, it, it took away a lot of the anxiety around eating, which mm. of course, you know, helped with the, with, with physically eating food. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's very, it was a, it's a very interesting interaction, I think for me, because a lot, a lot of the, I guess, um, the, the presentation of um, my neurodivergence is in like food texture and smell. Mm. Um, And um, so that, I guess, um, that realization just helped me to um, put little things in place. Like I don't like the texture of bananas, but I don't, I don't mind the taste of them. So I just put it in a smoothie, you know? (laughs) I can relate to that one. Exactly. That is, banana texture is not good. Oh, no, no, not a <laughs> good for me. Not a um, yeah. So I, yeah, it was just it's really nice to be able to, um, you know, uh, put less pressure on myself to to eat in a certain way or certain things, mm-hmm. um, and it just gave me a lot a lot more um, ammunition to push back on other people who tried to push that as well. So often people will be like, oh, just try it, you know, and if you say no, they're like, oh, you know, that's the eating disorder kind of thing. And you're like, well, no, actually, I just really don't like the texture. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a more valid, I guess, um, reason not to than eating disorders are, I think, for people. Um so yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think like what you're talking to there is, you know. We have um, in feeding and eating. So I'm a dietitian and I work a lot with pediatrics and neurodivergence. Um, And we have a lot of what I call neuronormative feeding goals and expectations. So around social eating, around eating a really wide variety of all different Mm -hmm. textured foods that are all touching and all mixed together and sitting at a table and sitting still at a table and using utensils and you're not having distractions and all of these, I guess, expectations about what is an ideal way to eat or to feed our children or to nourish ourselves. And I don't feel like those are going to be um, congruent with every neurodivergent person's actual authentic preferences and needs around eating. And we need to be able to challenge them and to keep the ones that fit and to let go of the ones that don't and to actually I really like what you said there around like having a like how do we provide that as a reason to people and actually have it be taken for like as the honest truth you know those aren't necessarily eating disorder behaviors they're often misclassified as that in the initial presentation but we need to be able to then tease out well was that behavior there present before the acute eating disorder was present and and what purpose is that serving? What would happen if we actually expose you to those textures? You know, you're going to create an aversive experience. It's not something we can desensitize you to. It's, that is an aversive experience that's not going to help recovery. Yeah. That's going to hinder recovery. And so, 
we need to bring all of those assumptions to the table when we're working with people who are having challenges with feeding and eating and and they're all up for discussion and renegotiation you know if a person needs to watch something while they're eating then they watch something while they're eating there's other ways we can connect that are outside eating like I just really struggle with that one so I think I'm so glad that you brought that up because it is around challenging those ideas and bringing in new ones and having those new ways of being be valid yeah, um, yeah. and accepted. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of autistic people do struggle with, um, you know, being underweight because of, you know, difficulties with certain, you know, food types or, or whatever. And I think sometimes the, um, the approach is, oh, well, let's just give them something that's, um, we know that they're not going to cope with or eat instead of giving them what we do know that they will eat. And like, you know, if it's, a, it's not the healthiest, like it's better that they eat food than not eat at all. And in my mm. opinion. <laughs> um, mm. Well, I think there's ways around it that potentially we are not valuing as much as simply pushing that neuronormative expectation, you know. Yeah. There are solutions as well like you know if um if a child is like not or a person is like struggling I I think this is more I guess in terms of parents um um but like if a child for example is really really struggling to eat their lunch if it's a packed lunch for example is it maybe because you know the pasta is cold instead of hot the way that pasta should usually be is it maybe mm-hmm. that, you know, um, I don't know like a, like a, a sandwich is like needs to be toasted? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, like these little tiny things might be oh. the difference between someone eating their lunch and not eating their lunch. And if you can just yeah. figure out what those might be, you might be able to put some strategies mm. in place to combat that. You know, maybe it's a, a flask that keeps heat or, you know, maybe yes. it's asking the teachers if you can use their toaster. You know, it's it's little mm. things like All that. All different things. All yeah. the differences. Um, as a, like a parent that packs lunch boxes all the time, <laughs> like <laughs> I, bento boxes all the way, by the way. But seriously, like when, when I see some school lunches and it's like everything is like not separated or mixed in together or they've got a piece of cut fruit in there and like the smell of the cut fruit in my my sensory system is like now everything in the lunchbox smells like that piece of cut fruit and I don't like that smell so I'm not going to eat anything else so it really does that doesn't it <laughs> oh my gosh it totally does it's like you put a piece of cut up apple in a lunchbox the lunchbox is gone like it's not happening <laughs> So, <laughs> so <funny. laughs> you just had a little realization. <laughs> oh my god! And honestly, like I've packed the same lunchbox for my children for like years, and like like minor changes, like every couple of years, and it's like that works. They are happy. They go to school and they eat. And if something else goes in there, it's coming home. Yeah. So we've covered so much ground. Is there any before we wrap up? I just want to thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you wanted to leave us with? Any little insights or where people can find you and follow and learn more about what you're doing? Please, we'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm on like LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. Rebecca McCash, I think that's the 
I think it's just <laughs> um, also our website um, with Future Tech. Definitely follow along with that journey. Um, we are updating our website slowly, slowly. Um, but it's www.futuretechaustralia.org. Um, and you should be able to get most of the updates there or our Facebook page, which is Future Tech Australia. Uh, we don't have an Instagram. I'm a little bit um, uh, opposed to to getting too many different social media accounts that I have to keep track of. Um, that sounds like good self-management, good boundary setting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but um, no, thank you so much. Um, I feel like we jumped around a lot of different spots there but uh, hopefully people listening can can make sense <laughs> I think we've covered lots of amazing ground and yeah you know as is typical of our brains we take little turns here and there really definitely a uh, representation of of my general day-to-day brain <laughs> <laughs> same <laughs> amazing well Rebecca thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and Look, I'm just wishing you all the best for Future Tech Australia. I think it's an amazing, amazing idea. And I'm just really excited to see what comes of it. Thank you, Anna. Thanks so much.